Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 10th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squatran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, let's start things off with what we've been doing. Uh, yesterday, I went to the reopening of Downtown Disney. This is the shopping district outside Disneyland. Uh, Disneyland had hoped to open for the 65th anniversary, which is coming up on July 17th. Uh, the governor of California thought that was a bad idea, and Disney obliged. So <laughs> they, they did open up their shopping district, much like Universal opened CityWalk. And I did attend both of those openings. CityWalk was kind of uh, very dead. Not many people were there at the opening of this. The the opening of Downtown Disney, there was a lot of annual pass holders, a lot of locals uh, excited that some part of Disney is back in their lives. Uh, they, uh, they're, <laughs> I'll say this, Disney kind of has it under control. They had a lot of uh, the plaid cast members that are usually like the vip tour guides they were all over the place uh enforcing the social distancing rules there was there was not like you, you couldn't go too many feet with there not being like hand sanitizer stations or hand washing stations uh there were lines to get into the stores because they were only allowing like a very limited amount of people in a store at one time and but in all those lines were very socially distant and uh we went to the the big store there is like the world of Disney. That's where they have all the exclusive Disneyland merchandise. We're covering it for our YouTube channel, Ordinary Adventures. The video is up right now. And uh, we wanted to see like, you know, all, all the merchandise that was supposed to come out in the parks for the last three months or four months since the parks have been closed. We wanted to check out some of that stuff, including the, the big 65th annual, annual uh, Disneyland park merchandise. Uh, so we we uh, had to wait in line for a virtual queue to come back and get into the store. But once you were in the store, like it wasn't there was not many people 
and I felt very safe. It, uh, I know this sounds cheesy. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if any of you guys can can relate to this. Maybe Jacob, maybe, but just being on Disney property and hearing like the Disney music playing over like the speakers while you walked around, it was somehow comforting. <laughs> it felt like uh, we weren't living in the post-apocalyptic uh, world that we're, we found ourselves in for, you know, a couple hours. Uh, so I would say, anyways, check out that video. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to see, you know, what what it's like at the op- reopening of Downtown Disney during this pandemic and how they're, you know, handling all of these safety procedures like, you know, temperature checks and stuff like that. C- captured all that on uh, on camera. I will say this. It is annoying that uh, Disney, both Disney World and Disneyland, they have taken a stance on the the mask department. And, and, and I'm, no, I'm not one of those people. I, I am fine wearing a mask, but I have been the mask I have found to be the most comfortable mask is a gator mask. I'm not sure. If, do any of you guys have like a gator mask? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. That's that's the one I wear. Yeah, it's like the circular, I guess, like a scarf kind of thing that like goes around your head and it covers from your nose all the way down to like your neck. It's the thing and... that uh, Batman wears in Batman v Superman in the nightmare sequence. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. It's the thing he pulls up over his face, even though he's already wearing the bat mask. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, well, Disney parks have taken the stance that the mask that people have to wear, the face covering, I guess they call it. They don't call it a mask. They call it a face covering that people have to wear to the parks have to have a loop that goes over your ears. And thus the the gator masks do not qualify as a mask. So when I was trying to go in there, they like were like, you can't come in with that mask, sir, or that face covering, sir. You know, do do you need like something else? And they were like giving me they they were willing to give me out a, like a disposable mask or whatever. But I think this is a shame because number one, I think those gator masks, if, if anybody out there is looking for something more comfortable, especially if you have a beard, I found that like beards and masks cause a lot of problems. The gator masks are really good and really a lot more comfortable. But I also find that when I put a mask on my face because of the beard, it doesn't, it's very hard to get a, uh, a tight fit on a mask and, You'll you'll often have like parts like on the sides and bottom where there's kind of like air escaping from the mask because it's you know the your the the face hair on your face is kind of pushing it out a little. So I almost feel like a regular face covering, a regular mask is not as safe as a gator because a gator like traps in everything. Do you know what I mean? There's no no place for it to escape with a gator mask where there is place for it to escape with mask. Anyways, this is my rant. I, I know it probably doesn't matter to anybody, but I I did want to bring it up uh because I know probably people out there are looking for mask solutions. And I would you know say you know Google or Amazon uh, gator mask. They even have ones that have uh you know filters in them and stuff like that. So anyways uh so yeah check out the video I'll put it the link in the in the show notes and uh you know while I was doing doing all this Ben was moving across the country to Florida. Yes. After 11 years of living in Los Angeles, my wife and I moved to Florida. Well, she was she was there for, I think, eight or nine years. Um, I, I went out a little bit early. Um, but anyway, yes, we're, we're back in Florida now. Uh, we have a lot of family that's still in this area. Basically, we're, we're pretty close to 
like where I was born actually, which is kind of weird um, to, to be like so close to, you know, th- this, this part of my life. I spent the first 20 something years of my life in Florida. Um, so yeah, now we're, we're back and uh, we moved from an apartment in Los Angeles to a house in Florida. And that jump has been uh, a, a huge life change, but I have gotten used to it very quickly. I think I'm, I'm much more comfortable here than I was in LA. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, a big change, but uh, I guess now I'm, I'm, Every time I step outside, I run the danger of becoming the next Florida man. So I have to be careful <laughs> with what I do or else I could end up on a news news broadcast. Or something. I, I wouldn't worry about that, Ben. But what I would worry about is all the people in Florida. You know, the the, the, the cases are on the rise. Are you are you more cautious while you're there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I my wife and I have been taking this very seriously from the very beginning. So our, our level of caution has been, I, I would say, pretty similar throughout this entire experience. I mean, driving across the country in a U-Haul um, has sort of opened my eyes to the levels, the varying levels of seriousness with which you know, vast swaths of this country are, are taking the coronavirus. So uh, yeah, in Florida, it's not what I would call optimal, um, the, the way that everybody <laughs> is handling this here. I will say that, uh, you know, it, it's been a mixed bag. There, there are several establishments, you know, I've, having just moved into a house, I've had to go to Home Depot a bunch of times. And there are, it's really like half and half, it seems like, from my experience, basically being out in public anywhere. Uh, I haven't eaten indoors at any restaurants, but like going to pick stuff up for, uh, for pickup and takeout and stuff like that. Um, it seems like, yeah, really half the people are wearing masks and half aren't. So um, I'm just trying to minimize my uh, my trips outside of my house as much as possible and um, hoping that people sort of wise up and, and maybe, uh, I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but maybe some of these numbers will actually scare people into, <laughs> into behaving in a manner that will uh, help society at large. So um, not that I wish harm on anyone by any means, but uh, hopefully... Um, I don't know. Hopefully this is the, uh, the night is darkest just before the dawn moment. So um, I'll, I'll try to be optimistic and, and think about it like that. I can't even imagine moving during this time. And because there's so many things you need to buy. There's so many things like, I, I guess you guys probably unpacked everything yourself. So you didn't have any movers helping yeah, you out. That's correct. Yeah. We, we packed up our whole place. We spent like weeks and weeks actually slowly packing up our two bedroom apartment in LA, which was nice to have that much time because we actually closed on this house uh, at the beginning of the year. And we were planning on sort of being back and forth for a little while, like living here for a little bit and living back in LA for a little bit and keeping both places for just a little while until we could fully make the transition. But obviously the pandemic <laughs> uh, sort of threw a wrench into those plans. So we had this house just sort of sitting empty for months on end. And we decided, you know, if we're going to be cooped up inside, we might as well be cooped up inside the house that we're paying for <laughs> instead of this apartment that we're, you know, that is too small for us. So I, I don't want to focus too much on you and your move, Ben, but I'm wondering like, what has been the hardest thing because of this pandemic in the moving process? Like um, what have you found like the, the most restricting? I mean, the biggest bummer of the whole thing is that like, you know, a big part of the reason that we moved back was to be closer to family. And we have seen some of our family members since actually all of the ones that, that live around here uh, since we've been back. But you know, I can't give my mom a hug and like just the simple things like that. You know, I, I just don't, 
yeah. I, that that's the hardest thing. Uh, you know, moving during the pandemic is uh, is rough, but like the the um, <laughs> you know the the social restrictions that come with it uh, are really the the most difficult thing because frankly I spend most of my time inside anyway. <laughs> so, you know, it's just when you want to go out and see your family that you sort of moved here to see, um, it just sort of sucks that you got to still be on your guard and make sure everybody's taking it seriously. Yeah, for sure. Well, while you were moving, Ben was traveling. I mean, Brad was traveling. Brad, t- tell us about it. Yes, I was traveling. That's it. <laughs> where, where were you traveling to brad so uh my girlfriend's uh sister and her husband just um are, are moving they just moved from or just moved rather from uh utah to kansas city uh because my um her, her brother-in-law is going to medical school and that's where they're going and so they just moved out there right before the holiday weekend and they actually helped uh, my girlfriend Brittany move out here to me. They drove out with her and they helped us get our house all arranged and stuff uh, moved around and everything. And so she wanted to be able to go help them move. Um, they didn't really have as much to do or as much stuff to move. They made it a little bit easier on themselves. Um, so they were relatively finished by the time we got there. Um, but it was nice just to be able to hang out because it was 4th of July weekend uh, and it had just been a while since we had, uh, had, had seen them and were able to like, just relax. And so it was really mellow, you know, like it wasn't, we didn't have to worry about like going anywhere or try and see all these tourist attractions or anything like that. It was just, you know, relaxing and, you know, cooking at home and, uh, just kind of just enjoying the time, you know, to, to, to hang out and not, you know, still kind of, you know, obviously social distancing and stuff like that, but, um, and everyone has been safe and, you know, we wear, wear masks when we did go out to like pick up food and, and that kind of thing, but it was just good to go somewhere else for a while. It's, you know, um, there's been no traveling and it was, it was an eight hour drive, which isn't too bad actually. Like it's, it's, it is a long time to spend in a car, but it didn't really feel like it was a long time. We kind of enjoyed it just getting out of the house and not having to do the normal things that we do every day. So yeah, that's, um, I went, went down there and we just got back uh yesterday and it was just like i said nice to get away very cool ht what have you been up to speaking of getting away and doing socially distance activities i went to my first drive-in theater well technically it was a pop-up drive-in um i've never been to a drive-in theater before and i've always wanted to go especially with all just the um with them being the only um movie venues that are actually running right now and but there haven't really been any in this like in the northern virginia area where i grew up so i never really was able to go to one even as a kid but um amid the pandemic uh a pop-up theater was a uh, pop-up drive-in was uh hosted at tyson's corner mall which is the big mall near me and um i went there to, with my parents and we saw back to the future um and it was great you know i mean we talked plenty of times about back to the future a perfect movie and it was funny because uh i remembered more about Back to the Future than my parents and I was quoting a lot of lines to them and they were just like what happened in this movie and they're like we saw this in theaters like 30 years ago and I was like I can tell so um yeah that was a fun little um uh sort of excursion and uh it was cool it was like my first time doing this sort of pandemic style um pop-up uh drive-in thing so like they had 
for the audio, um, if you couldn't hear through like the speakers they had, they had like a, a radio channel which you could tune your car into and um, listen to it from listen to it from within your car. So that was pretty cool. Technology nowadays really just uh, uh, helps just the whole uh, living situation right now. But uh, <laughs> what, what what did you think of like the presentation and experience? Is it like something you would do again? if the world were normal? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just really fun. It's just kind of, it's like a a more gaseous version of a screen on the green. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I would do it again. Um, but I would definitely, I would, I want to try again, but it's all sold out for the next couple months. So I don't know if I'll be able to see any more, but um, I really wanted to, they were showing the uh, Tim Burton Batman. I really wanted to go see it again. Um, but that one's, already sold out so uh it's too bad but i'm glad i got to have that experience at least yeah uh what else have you been up to oh i discovered that i do in fact have hbo max so it's been how long has it been since it launched it was it's been like a <laughs> month i think um but Probably. yeah i have um i'm under verizon bios and uh i think at the beginning when it first launched it didn't uh hbo max didn't have that deal with verizon yet and somehow, secretly, that deal did come through because now I'm able to access it. And I was very excited just to, to, to peruse through the the vast library that ha- that is HBO Max. But um, I got kind of overwhelmed by how many things there were and ended up just rewatching a lot of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who. But I'm happy that I have it and uh, I can start watching, I don't know, more things, more streaming services. Wait, how- how did you discover that you had it? I'm, I'm very curious. Well, I was kind of—I was just jealous that everyone was able to watch things on HBO Max. <laughs> so I was just checking it out and seeing um, how much the subscription subscription was, and like thinking about just you know getting a subscription. And then I decided to just test out on a whim whether my like <laughs> the, my login would work. And I was like, wow, it does work. Okay, so it just, it just happened. I'm very lucky that I didn't go and buy it. I'm wondering how many people out there listening probably have HBO Max and don't even know they have it like you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering it, if that's like a big portion of people. It probably is because the rollout has been very confusing. And the HBO Max has, while they've been good about announcing their new titles, they haven't really been good about like telling people or informing people who actually has it. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading Jacob, what have you been reading this week? Uh, yeah, I read the new book by Max Brooks. Uh, goodness, I know it's devolution or devolution. <laughs> I'm going to say devolution because it's easier for me to say. But Max Brooks wrote uh, uh, World War Z, the original novel, uh, over 10 years ago. And he's written things since then, some comics and like a Minecraft spinoff novel. But this is his first like full-fledged, like proper novel since World War Z. And I, and I think World War Z is one of the best horror books ever written. Uh, I yeah, I think it's incredible. I think it's so much better than the film version ever was. So I had kind of high expectations here. And uh, the book most lived up to for me. This is a really entertaining, often very scary and exciting book. Uh, like World War Z, which is presented as a series of interviews of zombies, people who survived the zombie apocalypse. This one is also sort of a found document thing. Or it's a combination of interviews with people uh, reacting to the event and the event depicted in a woman's journal as her isolated... Uh, community in Washington is uh, under siege by a family of Bigfoots or Big Feet, however you want to say it, Sasquatches, uh, Bonneville Snowmen, you pick your word. And it is, what I like about it 
and what I like about World War Z is that Brooks clearly does his homework here, and he clearly says, "Okay, what are the actual social, economic, you know, ramifications of a f- group of people being attacked by a Bigfoot, <laughs> and how would people in 2020 react, and what would be, you know, would the what would the reaction be from people in this day and age with te- technology on hand, and with the knowledge we have, what would the ramifications be?" And in the case of this book, uh, basically just said that the Bigfoot family is pushed forward by a natural disaster in the area, uh, which means that this isolated, already isolated community has lost internet, has lost, you know, communication with the outside world, and they're forced, you know, make do with what they have. In some ways, it plays out like the Martian, and that these people must survive in this area with, with like, limited resources, but also has them <laughs> be surrounded by monsters. And it reminded me a lot of, like, of Michael Crichton's best stuff, but written in sort of, a, you know, a found footage or found document style. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Not as much as World War Z, but I read it in one sitting, had a great time with it. Uh, I know Chris also read this. We talked about it on Slack, Chris. You did not like this. Um, yeah, I, I like some of the writing. I like that, you know, I, I like that homework thing you're talking about. Like the disaster that takes place is like a volcano erupts. And I found all that stuff like really interesting. The problem I had with it is every single character in this is just very annoying. And some of them are supposed to be annoying. But then there are characters who are clearly supposed to not be annoying. Like there's this old woman character in in the community who like understands what's going on before everyone else. And she, uh, you know, starts preparing for what's going to happen. And it's clear to me that she's supposed to seem like this really interesting character. And I could not stand her. And I spent the whole book being like, I can't wait until a Bigfoot kills this woman. And eventually... <laughs> eventually the characters slowly get killed off one by one. And uh, I liked that, but I really did not care for the book at all. I, I love world war Z. So I was looking forward to this, but you know, the writing is fine. I just did not like the characters. Yeah. Um, I, I disagree. I, I, the characters never bothered me in the way that they bothered Chris, but uh, this is very much a teach his own situation. Cause I'm, I'm not going to say Chris is incorrect about this. I, I have a very low tolerance for people. So <laughs> just people in general, I just have a very low tolerance for them. So yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm biased there. But I think you'll agree that the uh, film version that's already been picked up by legendary uh, has a lot of promise because it, it reads like a, like a really exciting movie. Oh yeah. I think if you know this ends up being a well-made movie, it would actually, it'd probably be like, the best Bigfoot movie ever. It's because there not really aren't that many Bigfoot movies to begin with, but if they like nail the horror elements, it'll be like a legitimately scary, disturbing Bigfoot movie. So that might be cool. Yeah, it's real good. That's a uh, de-evolution by Max Brooks. Do you, uh, do they have a director for that? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, this, all they've announced that legendary is doing it. Interestingly, um, in the acknowledgments, Max Brooks thanks the head of legendary pictures for uh, selling him or letting him have back his movie pitch turned into a novel, which he then apparently sold back as a movie pitch. <laughs> so it's interesting. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Okay, uh, Brad, what have you been reading? I'm normally not in the reading section because I am illiterate, but I learned to read and here I am and you can do it too. Well, th- th- this book is just like all images, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a picture book um, and it's, it's a damn good one, let me <laughs> tell you. No, uh, so I started reading... The Office, uh, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s in oral history. Um, If you can't tell, this is a book about The Office, uh, the show that was on NBC. And it's um, very simple because it's just uh, a collection of interviews with the cast and creators and people who had a key part in bringing the show uh, to life. And it runs through in a a chronological way, um, broken down from the inception of the series through various episodes and 
production hiccups and that kind of thing. And as a, a big fan of The Office, I, I'm always watching the reruns when they're on Comedy Central. I'll throw it on in the background on Netflix uh, from time to time. I've, I've seen, you know, the, the entire series several times over. Uh, and it's just a really great fun read. There's so many cool tidbits in here about uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of it right now, so I haven't finished yet. But there's just uh, awesome bits of trivia in here. Like uh, I found out that they, they tried to offer the role of Michael Scott to Paul Giamatti and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And they both turned it down because it was at a time when TV was kind of looked down upon by movie stars and they weren't interested in whatsoever. And the list for uh, of other people they considered for Michael Scott is even crazier. People like Steve Buscemi and stuff were, uh, were talked about. Um, and then, and there's, there's uh, casting lists for a lot of the other characters too. And it's just really interesting to hear how it all came together and how much, you know, kind of backlash there was at first and how much work had to go into convincing people. It was even a good idea since the UK one was already so respected and revered that they figured America would screw it up. Like they did every other, you know, almost every other remake of a British TV series. Um, but yeah, if you're a fan of the office, it's definitely uh, worth picking it, picking up um, and yeah, reading through it. Philip Seymour Hoffman would have been weird that would have been crazy yeah it's you know he, he's such a good actor and i know he would have been great if i i can't imagine him doing some of the stuff that that steve carell did like a lot of michael scott i think is very much ingrained in steve carell as as a person and so i think it, it would have definitely would have made the vibe uh different but like because uh, I, I think of how you know Philip Seymour Hoffman has been in some of his comedic roles like in along came polly and twister and stuff and you know mixing that with this kind of charm that he does inherently have. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to imagine him in that role. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching uh, this past week on Disney plus. They released Hamilton. This is the filmed version of the stage musical. Uh, I think a bunch of us watched this. Uh, ben talked about it last week. Uh, I'll, I'll start because I, I had not really read much about Hamilton. I had kind of stayed away from it. I had not listened to any of the music. The only musical number I had heard was, uh, I think, the opening number that was featured on an episode of Some Good News, where the cast kind of reprised over Zoom that that musical number. Um, so I, I really didn't know much of what to expect. Uh, I think this is brilliant. Uh, hot take, guys. Hamilton is brilliant. Uh, it's a, I think, think this is a, you know, a seminal piece of art here. And it's a, I absolutely love the music. I was not expecting, I honestly had like, I, no idea how, like, I didn't expect it to be so nonstop. I didn't know that the whole movie was going to like, that there wasn't going to be parts that weren't musical. Um, and not only is it nonstop, but it is like so fast. Like the music is so fast. I, I, I looked up and like the words per minute is so much higher than the average Broadway musical that if you put that many words per uh, that as many words as there were in in Hamilton, the musical, if you had adapted that to the speed of a normal song of a Broadway musical, this musical would be six hours long, but you know, they, they, you know, some of these songs are just like so fast paced. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a criticism there, but I did, I will admit that after the first song, I, 
I asked uh, Kitra if we could turn on the subtitles because I felt like I was missing some of the words. And I I feel like that is a benefit of the home viewing experience because I feel like if I was in an audience far away from the stage, now you know, in the, in this film version, you get to see some close ups and you know, you know, you can read the lips and whatever. Um, you get more to it, but I I think also I I got something more to it because I I was able to watch it with subtitles, so I missed less. Um, and um, I I love the casting. I love that, you know, aside from the stylistic approach that this musical takes, I, which is probably the most obvious thing to talk about with Hamilton, uh, you know, I love that, you know, we have like the, the future of America telling the story of how it was founded and representing the white past with the POC uh, color cast. Um, it's, such a refreshing musical and so uh, like the style stylistically how they present the story uh with hip-hop and just like just the rhythm and tone of the approach is uh in the execution of the music alone makes it one of the best musicals of all time uh i would say i'm gonna give you three criticisms these might be nitpicks but uh my one one minor complaint is that at its core this musical is still kind of glorifying a story of the founding fathers and while i love that it's so stylistically different than what we've gotten before in that area i wish it had approached the characterizations of the story in a different way like i wish it addressed the problem of you know, these folk heroes of our past, uh, you know, our founding fathers being, you know, also slave owners and there being problems there. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I kind of wish it, it had gone into that a little somehow. Um, but uh, I the other one, I think none of you are going to agree with. <laughs> and that is, I, you know, the the stage design is so cinema, uh, simple and elegant. It's a minimal production design. It's like a bare bones black box theater. And I, I get it. They are going, they're going for a backdrop. That's like how the country, like it's like the rough foundations of in which this country was built. I, or at least that's my reading of it. Um, but I honestly was not impressed by, you know, like, I, I feel like they could have had some better, like, changes of scenery and I don't know I I know that's not what they were going for and I appreciate what they were going for but I I kind of wish there was more production in in that aspect and the the other criticism I have uh is that it wasn't I wasn't really impressed by the production of it as a film it, it captures the performance uh but doesn't do really anything special on top of that like they filmed from what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong they filmed two performances with crowds and then they had one day of them with cameras on the stage so they got like some more close-ups and stuff like that I feel like they could have done more here I honestly th- this is not I feel like this is my biggest nitpick because this film uh more than adequately captures the stage performance but I just kind of wish that it was more than what it was, if that makes sense. Oh, and one last thing. And this is another thing that I, I think 
people aren't going to agree with here. But uh, Lynn manuel Miranda is a genius. He's an amazing songwriter. I, I, I can't believe he created this whole thing. But I don't think he's a great actor. So, um, uh, oh, uh, before I, I hand this over to you guys, I know I'm t- talking way too long, but I, I will say that some of my favorite moments, uh, I'll, I'll be very brief and broad here so that I'm not spoiling anything for anybody, but I like the rewind thing. I like, uh, rap battle debates. I like, um, <laughs> I like that this, mo- this, uh, this play is about legacy and there's like characters almost breaking the third wall at time and looking back at the stories and third person after the fact. I love, King George is not something I expected to love, and he's so good. And uh, Jefferson, the guy that plays Jefferson, um, and uh, so many duels back in the day. So many duels. Okay, uh, I'll let someone else talk now. Jacob, what did you think of Hamilton? Uh, I watched it several times. Uh, I've listened to the soundtrack (laughs) a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I I think Hamilton is the seminal piece of American art of the 21st century so far. (laughs) Yeah, I really strongly believe that. I, 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 as a Broadway musical, it's beautiful. As a adaptation of history, like it's, I've I've read the the book it's based on, Ron Chernow's Alexander Hamilton, and it's actually a like startlingly close um, adaptation of uh, of of that book. It's you know a thousand page long biography. Uh, in fact, it's crazy stuff in that book that, that that you couldn't put in Broadway musicals because people wouldn't believe it. Uh, um, I, I do disagree with one thing you said, Peter, which is that I do think the um. I think it takes to task um, certain characters pretty well on, on some of their flaws. Like I think uh, I know Ron Chernow's book and the musical both call uh, call out Thomas Jefferson early and often for his uh, hypocritical views and being a, being a slave owner. I do wish the musical uh, was harsher toward um, George Washington. I know Lin-Manuel Miranda addressed this in Hamilton book about how there are elements in there that, that hints toward it, but it's a complicated issue, uh, and one that I, I, I'm glad people are talking about now. Not enough to, to cancel the show by any means, uh, but I do I do think there's more in there, uh, especially since the, the main character, uh, you know, was in real life a very staunch abolitionist himself. So I think there's a conversation to be had there, uh, but I, I do think that calling out certain characters, especially Thomas Jefferson, often enough is is a bold move considering that he's, you know, an iconic figure. Uh, but like I said, I think I do agree with you about Washington there, but yeah, I think David Diggs and Leslie Odom Jr. are especially brilliant here. I think, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is better to give him credit for Peter. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, I think it, it speaks for itself. Um, I, I love history. I love musicals. I, I think the wordplay here is so dense and so clever that every time I listen to it, I find new rhymes and new turns of phrase to appreciate. Uh, I think it's, I think it's straight up brilliant. And I, yeah. I understand the criticism you have about the filmmaking. Uh, ben had the same one. For me, it's like, do I want a Hamilton film or do I want footage that captures the stage version, which is the presentation which I'll never get to see because I can't afford it. Um, and I think at the end of the day, I think I prefer the latter. Uh, but HT, I think you were also a Hamilton fan before this movie, correct? Yes, I was. And um, I actually had seen it before with the national tour. I'd never seen it with the original cast before. Um, and I 
had liked the national um, performance, national tour performance of it. Um, I had listened to the soundtrack and loved the soundtrack before. And um, but I'm the kind of person who actually likes to watch the listen to the the soundtrack for the first time while watching the the musical itself. And I think my high high expectations of of listening to the soundtrack beforehand kind of set me up for some disappointment watching the national tour. Um, but those expectations were definitely exceeded with um with the uh filmed version with the original cast because just you know when you're listening to the soundtrack you uh are get so attached to the original cast performances and all their nuance and nuances and ticks and it's just done so brilliantly and you can really just imagine and see that entire performance just from listening to the soundtrack on its own and almost everything else kind of compare uh, pales in comparison uh when you see it performed by any other cast and just seeing it for the first time with that original cast um, in this film form, which really gives you the best seat in the house uh, was just, just blew me away. I was so excited to just like to see it with the original cast. And um, I had, you know, my, my criticism with the seeing it at on um, the national tour cast. I saw that I'm at the Kennedy center, um, like, I don't know, three, two, three years ago. Um, and I, I, I think that my expectations were set up because I really love Leslie Odom Jr.'s, um, performance in the, the songs. And I always felt like my, the, the bird that I saw on stage had been a little bit too weaselly, but seeing Leslie Odom Jr. in the original performance, it just brings out how brilliant and how amazing and talented he is and he really brings up that whole Salieri to um Hamilton's Mozart dynamic that I I really loved about the about listening to the soundtrack too and I just think that seeing that um original cast uh give it their all and having like in mind that soundtrack that I listened to over and over again um it just kind of gives this whole big richer fuller experience and uh in the close-ups as well like I you know I had high expectations for the for like this what was it uh, the um well how did the D- Disney plus describe it it was like a um something that sounded like it was something a, a live capture yeah, like live pushing capture. The, the boundaries of live yeah capture. yeah I think that they were just like you know making it very using very fancy PR language because it was just basically a very basic filmed version of the of the musical which I appreciate because I got to see them up close and I do like that I, for, I don't know if this is the case with the um, original cast performance. Um, and Chris and Ben, I feel like, I think you've seen the original cast, so you might uh, be able to tell me about this. But seeing it um, on the Disney Plus uh, like version, the film, I feel like there were so many more um, like small glances and gestures and bits of staging that really added to the whole performance of it. And like, especially with... Um, Hamilton and Angelica's a little um, interactions. I really, really love that. And even the sort of background um, stage, not staging, but like the, you know, the, the blocking of all the people, even when they're not actually performing um, added to that storytelling as well. Um, ben, I think you saw it with the original cast. I didn't, I saw it in LA and um, the, the original cast was not there. I, I don't remember the names okay. of the people that I saw it, but I, I, I'm like, part of me is on board with what you're saying and I'll, I'll mm-hmm. make this short cause I want other people to be able to talk. But um, there's a moment in uh, the story of tonight where the camera lingers for a second on this shot of John Lawrence, like staring longingly into Hamilton's eyes that, you know, there's this huge Tumblr community of people who are like hardcore shipping those two characters and like 
there may have actually been a complicated affair, kind of maybe a little bit more than brotherly love relationship between those two characters in real life. Um, and I think the movie, by holding that shot and, and really, you know, pushing in on that close up and, and giving you access to see that expression that you're talking about, you probably wouldn't have seen if even if you were sitting in the audience that night. I think that's the kind of stuff I wish there was more of in this. Um, but I'll, I'll shut up for a minute and, and let you finish and let other people no, talk. No, it's okay. I mean, I, I feel like there were enough of those in this film version that I was able to appreciate it and get like a new experience out of Hamilton that I hadn't already had from listening to the soundtrack thousands of times. But I, I really enjoyed this. And um, going to your first point, Peter, about um, how this uh, how Hamilton doesn't really take to task as much the actual flaws and the actual um, sort of um, sins, I guess, of the founding fathers. Um, I feel like in a sense, it's part of Hamilton being a relic of its, of the Obama era in which it came out. Um, that sort of positive, optimistic politics that from which it was born. And I feel like that part of it is what feeds into that sort of, oh, if we uh, do colorblind casting, then that kind of smooths over some of the harsher edges of history that this story is telling. Um, yeah. But uh, I, and I do think that we're now seeing this from this like modern, this more contemporary sort of times and being almost more like um, cynical about this kind of stuff. Uh, that's kind of criticism, which actually had been levied against Hamilton when it first came out uh, is more clear now. But I do think that despite it being kind of, still a relic of that Obama era um, politics from which it was, it came out. It still is such a timeless and um, seminal, as you said, work of art. It really is just like, I know people have said this before and it sounds so cheesy when people say it's, it really is like the, the American modern day Shakespeare of our time. And it's just like, it's amazing to see it, to be here at the time, be in the room where it happens ah, yeah. when Hamilton came out. How so. lucky we are to be alive right now. Yes. <laughs> I think it's impossible to be hyperbolic about this, mm -hmm. uh, this you know, musical. I guess, uh, Chris, what did you think? Oh God, let's just move on. I feel like <laughs> everyone said so much already. I'm, I'm the last person to say anything. It's a good show. Um, I saw it twice on Broadway, and that's not because I'm rich. It's because I maxed out my credit cards. Because you know. Sure, I have debt, but one day I'll be dead and I won't have to worry about that debt. So <laughs> I, I saw this twice on Broadway, once with the original cast, once with the, the replacement cast. And I was so, I, you know, I obviously had an idea of what I was getting into watching this. But I, even like knowing what I knew beforehand, even like knowing all the songs by heart and all that stuff, this still really, really impressed me. Um, Some of the versions of songs included here are better than the versions that are on the cast recording. Like the, the version of satisfied here is, is uh, just phenomenal. It's beyond phenomenal. I, it like, it, it shocked me at how, how good it was. And yeah, I mean, obviously there are criticisms we have about the play. I do think it's a lot more critical than people give it <laughs> are giving it credit for. I feel like every male character, at least even Hamilton is very very flawed uh the only character who doesn't seem flawed is is washington and i do agree they do kind of uh, clean up his his backstory a bit but everyone but is I, 
But I feel like Hamilton is even kind of glorified. Even I mean, though he has he's... an affair. <laughs> he like cheats yeah. on his very loving wife and he could easily avoid uh, being killed in a duel, but he does it anyway because he's such a... a he's, uh, yeah, he's a classic tragic hero in the sense that everything that, ri- that ri- raises him up at the beginning of the first act is what is basically the cause of his doom in the second act. Yeah, like all the, all the... Like 90% of the problems that befall Hamilton are really of his own making like he's his own worst enemy here and you know i get it that it could be more critical but i think for a nearly like three hour show with so many songs and i think it does a a fairly good job um i i still um i i I like the way this was filmed i loved the close-ups because even though i had seen it on broadway i would i noticed stuff i hadn't seen on the stage show that said i really look forward to an eventual like real film version. Like my dream version film version of this is like everything looks historically accurate except the cast. Like I want this to look like Barry Lyndon, but with the Hamilton cast and the songs, obviously. And Jesus Christ, please do not let Tom Hooper direct the eventual movie. (laughs) (laughs) I I know someone somewhere in Hollywood is like, yeah, we can get Tom Hooper. Don't do that. Just please get a good filmmaker knows what they're doing to direct digital um, powdered wig technology yes <laughs> <laughs> you know guys since, since most of us have seen this now the one thing from ron turnow's book that i from real life from history that i wish was in this show and it's not because i think it would have added an impossible to ignore wrinkle to the entire plot is that in real life when angelica schuyler was living in europe uh she became best friends with thomas jefferson while he was ambassador to france and she remained best friends with Hamilton and Jefferson uh, until they both died. So imagine that version of the story where, where Hamilton knows that. Wow. I also, um, I, I want to mention I, Jonathan Groff. I, I appreciated like the spittle that you could see in the close-ups of like his stuff as King George, which I thought was just an amazing like uh, choice on his heart. But then I was reading afterwards that no he's just like uh he spits when he sings so it's just uh, he, at least according to him that's he just, says just it was away man like don't sit in the front row you can spit on I, i've been spit on at a show before it happens <laughs> but i just love that it's like it's like dripping down his chin as he's performing that that those pieces it's, it's great anyways uh Okay, are, are, are we ready to move on from Hamilton, or does anybody have anything else to say? I, I have a thousand more things to say, and so much trivia about what was left out from history, but I'm going to stop there, because we need, we're need we already 45 minutes into the show. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, guys, that we went so long in this, but it's rare that we get like a new thing that all of us have seen these days, So, and something as good as this, right? Like, it is, Let me ask you guys, if the end of the year was right now would this be the best quote-unquote film you've seen this year uh, i'm no. not sure if I can, i'm not sure if i can qualify it as a film as a, know, as a film play. if we're counting it as a film it would probably be in like my top 10 but it's not the, the best i've seen hmm. it, is, it is it is it is a filmed version of a great play i cannot qualify it as a movie i, I can't do it as, as much as i love it i can't do it See, I, so I, the, I feel at like the end of the year, you wouldn't include it at all. Honorable mention is saying like, "Hey, probably the best thing I saw this year, but not a movie." See, I feel like the fact that it has camera angles and stuff makes it a movie. I feel like, like if it was like one steady shot, and there are 
a lot of Broadway musicals, uh, they haven't been released, but they, they're filmed like that, where they set the camera up at the back of the theater and they just film it for posterity, basically. If it was that, I would say, oh, this isn't a movie. But the fact that they did like takes and stuff, like they didn't just shoot one performance. They shot multiple performances and then they reshot the close-ups for like an empty house, basically, just to get those close-ups. Yeah. I feel like that kind of makes it a movie, but I also see the argument that it isn't a movie. So yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know. There have been other Broadway musicals that have been filmed in this manner before too. So would they be considered mu- uh, movies? Like I no, they won't. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that it's a movie. <laughs> but but they wouldn't be in consideration. <laughs> they wouldn't be in consideration for best of the year. So it was never like mm. a thing to talk about in the past, right? Or am I wrong? Like, is there a film Broadway musical before this that would have been considered for like yes. best of that year? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's move on because we got a lot of stuff to cover today. Uh, what have I been watching? I finally got to see uh, Palm Springs. This is from the Lonely Island Gang. It's on Hulu, and this is a like how Ben. Yeah, I know you love this. Yeah, how much of this do you reveal? Like it, the the premise, I feel like it's in the trailer. Uh, it right? is. I would just say for anybody who's uh, who has Hulu and doesn't know the premise of Palm Springs, just go watch it right now. Like pause this episode and watch it because it's on Hulu right now, and then you'll have much more enjoyment. But uh, I think you can reveal the the premise here, Peter, because as you mentioned, it is in the marketing. I just you know it, it's it's one of those things that I, I feel like the less you know about this movie, the better going in. Yeah. So, okay. Skip ahead a minute if you don't want to know anything about Palm Springs, but I'm, I'm, I'm literally gonna not go into anything that's deeper than the first 20 minutes. So, uh, this movie, uh, stars any Andy Samberg and he's playing a character who is trapped on this one day where, uh, his friends are getting married or yeah, his girlfriend is in the wedding and they're in Palm Springs and it is like Groundhog Day, where the day is repeating itself over and over again. I I think, uh, you know, we've get, we're getting a lot of this time loop stuff recently in both movies and TV. And I think what's kind of pushing these things forward is that we're able to do things beyond what we did in Groundhog Day. Like, you know, this skips the whole discovery period. It starts at a point where he's already been in this loop for a while and uh yeah so it, it, i don't want to go too far into the premise but i think there's some clever stuff there this is a fun uh romantic comedy there's some surprising layers that keep on peeling as you go along it's cute it's very good i don't think i loved it as much quite as much as you've been but i i it would still if you know at this point in time, it would be in my top 10 of the year, but I'm not sure if that's saying much because there hasn't been much that's come out this year. So, uh, but I, I would say, go see it. If you have Hulu, why not? Right. So, um, no, no one else has seen this other than me and Ben. Uh, Chris saw it, but, and talked about it recently, right? Like on a, on a recent episode of the water. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So go check that out. If you want to hear what Chris thought, I also, um, the other thing I saw this week, was this mini series, a three part mini series called Quiz? And this aired in the UK and here in the United States, it aired on AMC. And uh, it's based on a true story. It 
tells the story of this couple who went on the British version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which, as it turns out, is the the first version of Who Wants to Million- Be a Millionaire. We we stole it from them, or we licensed it from them, uh, and they were accused of cheating the show. And actually, they were yeah. So they're accused of cheating, cheating the show, but it's interesting because they claim to this day that they weren't. So the story is being told in kind of a, a I guess, wishwashy kind of way where you're seeing both sides of things. Uh, it is also kind of an origin story of sorts because you kind of find out how you know Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was created. It was originally going to be this TV show called Cash Mountain. Just, just like the worst name ever. Uh, the I think this is an interesting story, and it's also a story I don't feel like a lot of people have heard about, especially in America, because all this happened. The day that this whole thing went down was the day before September 11th. So in in, in a way, it's kind of like uh, that whole Monopoly thing where like bigger world events were happening uh around the time and uh we probably weren't hearing too much about it uh they they cheated or they were accused of cheating the show using a system of coughing uh they it's it's interesting because it's not really a big part of this this miniseries but there was like this whole syndicate that was cheating british game shows and i guess the syndicate was i want to say cheating they were uh, trying to help each other game the system. I don't think they were ever were uh, caught cheat, quote unquote cheating. And uh, that syndicate was account- accounted for more than 10% of all the winnings on who wants to be a millionaire. Um, so they talk a little bit, bit about that. It's interesting. Uh, the, th- they go into the court case, the defense in the court case is a lot of fun. Uh, I will say though, the cinematography feels very TV. It feels like a, like a a TV movie from like 10 years ago. So I don't know, it, it, which is strange because I think this is directed by who is it directed by uh, Stephen Frears. So I don't know. You, you, I would expect a little bit more from the cinematography of the show, but I, I, I would say, check it out. I saw it on AMC on demand. So it's, it's available there and it's worth watching. I wouldn't say it's like exceptional in any way, but it's uh, an interesting story. Uh, and that is called Quit. Jacob, what have you been watching? I watch a lot of stuff, so I'm going to go as fast as I can while trying to be as clear as I can. I watched Session 9, which is streaming on Netflix. This is a horror film from Brad Anderson, who went on to make The Machinist and other films. Uh, it's unique because it's shot in an actual um, mental hospital, an abandoned mental hospital. And they use... Uh, sort of lo-fi digital cameras so they can get you know get into tight spaces and use low light to like really capture how gritty and ugly it is and it follows a uh cleanup crew who are there to remove asbestos uh and they may or may not be going insane and there may or may not be a haunted asylum and things go very badly for them and it has a very very good uh final stretch after a very slow burn hour or so i like session nine a lot it's very creepy i know chris is also a fan uh Chris, everything's table session nine. It is a great movie. And it's also apparently the movie that Brad Anderson will be chasing his entire career because nothing he's made since has been quite as good. That is true. Anyone else here? Here's session nine. No. Okay. Moving on. Session nine, Netflix. It's good. Also on Netflix. Well, I, 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 
I, I do have one thing to note. Oh, yeah? Uh, our former editor, Russ Fisher, worked on the art department of that movie. Oh, really? So it's an interesting bit of trivia. Oh, yeah. good. That's, that's really cool to know. I did not know that. Uh, Russ, send us your Session 9 trivia, please. Uh, I watched Lockout on Netflix, the uh, Guy Pierce 2012 sci-fi action movie that I and the rest of the internet have called Space Jail, the film that famously lost in French court when John Carpenter sued the filmmakers over uh, them ripping off <laughs> Escape from New York. Uh it's really an escape from New York in space. It's not very good. I've seen it twice. Uh, I think I wanted to see if, if I liked it more with time. The answer is no, not really. Guy Pierce is having a great time. Like a super muscled Guy Pierce playing Kurt Russell in Escape from New York in a ripoff Escape from New York. Uh, I wish it was better. They clearly built one hallway and reused it like six times for the, sp- uh, for the space set. It's about Guy Pierce is in space trying to rescue the president's daughter from space jail. I, it sounds better than it is. It looked awful in 2012. The visual effects were bad almost a decade ago. They're worse now. But that's Lockout. You should watch maybe five minutes of it and see Guy Pierce having some fun. Otherwise, you can skip it. Uh, also on Netflix, a Netflix original, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Uh, this is the second film from Osgood Perkins, who made The Black Coat's Daughter and made uh, Gretel and Hansel. It came earlier this year. I really love Black Coat's Daughter. I think it's one of my favorite horror films of the past decade. And the pretty thing, Listen in the House, is ambitious. It is weird. I'm glad I watched it. It is borderline impossible for me to recommend it to you. It is too slow, too honestly kind of boring to like say like to be enthusiastic. But if you want an adventurous, like horror, an adventurous odd horror movie that emphasizes tone and like a feeling of uneasiness over plot, scares, character, dialogue, anything else. Uh, maybe give it a shot. It is only like 84 minutes, but it's extremely hard for me to like be enthusiastic about this film, especially knowing that he would come back and uh, with, with better results with Gretel and Hansel. And I know we can do because of Black Coat's Daughter, but this is definitely an interesting thing. I, I don't know why Netflix <laughs> saw value in it, but I'm glad it exists. That is, I am the pretty thing that lives in the house on Netflix. Uh, going on from art house horror to trash horror, I did a double feature of The Burning and Sleepaway Camp, which are both now streaming on the Shutter streaming service. These are both 1980s uh, slasher films set in, set in summer camps, you know, the whole wave kick off, kick off by Friday the 13th. Uh, the Burning is infamous because it is the first Miramax film. It is Harvey and Bob Weinstein's first movie, uh, which adds this really nasty undercurrent <laughs> to watching it these days. Uh, but it is rightfully uh, rightfully a cult favorite because it really is a really nasty and often very fun, you know, throwback horror film. Not even a throwback, it's an original horror film. This, this is kind of uh, B slasher movie that people these days are chasing and trying to emulate. It's full of nasty gore and weirdness, and it is retrograde in most ways. Um, but as a, like, snapshot of you know you know uh low budget horror cinema in the 80s there's a lot to appreciate here and there's a scene on a raft where a bunch of kids on a raft approach a canoe uh that that they think is empty and something very bad happens that is rightfully famous (laughs) and it's uh makes the whole thing worth watching uh sleepaway camp is uh came out a few years later it's a funnier film both intentionally and unintentionally uh it is about a series of murders at a summer camp uh, with a twist ending that you will not see coming, uh, even though it's very famous if you if you know the horror genre. Uh, it is about as politically incorrect as you can get, and not in ways that I can appreciate, but that makes it in a weird way even more a must-watch because it's such a time capsule. Don't watch it if you are 
if you want sexual politics that are in any way enlightened or thoughtful, <laughs> but uh, it really does play like a really wacky, bad 80s camp comedy that gets invaded by a slasher kill every 10 minutes. And for that, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad I watched it again. It's been a long time. Uh, Chris is my fellow horror fan. Do you have opinions on The Burning and Sleepaway Camp? Uh, they're both very fun. And yes, they both have not aged very well, but I like them both. And if you want to see a young Jason Alexander, you should watch The Burning because he's in that. And it's so weird. Yeah, it's really, I, I, his voice sounds exactly the same, but he looks like he's 12 years old. It's so bizarre. <laughs> um, all right, uh, I watched one of my favorite films of all time, uh, streaming on Netflix right now, and that's Starship Troopers. I wrote about this in my quarantine stream article uh, this week. Uh, I think this is one of the best films ever made, and it's gotten even more upsetting <laughs> and timely as years have gone on. Because I think a lot of people may misunderstood what Paul Verhoeven was doing here in 1997, which is, uh, take a book that glorifies militaristic fascism uh, and putting it in the guise of like science fiction adventure and making it very clear how stupid he thinks those ideas are. Uh, the fact that, you know, he casts Denise Richards and Casper Van Dien, soap opera stars, and a bunch of like, you know, young, pretty people and shoots like an episode of Beverly Hills 90210 and has characters who are so vapid and so committed to a cause that's clearly fascism and clearly authoritarianism and the movie is such in such rabid support of right-wing ideology while making its characters so blank empty and hopelessly stupidly pretty that it becomes this like unsettling satire uh where characters take like fist pumping privilege and their enemies being afraid where one character in like a big exciting hero moment essentially uh, wishes genocide upon his enemy. Uh, Doogie Howser, this is not, it's not quite Neil Patrick Harris. He's still Doogie Howser at this point. Wears an SS uniform for most of his scenes, like as a military officer. And it's really, really funny on two levels because Paul Verhoeven is being intentionally cheesy, intentionally uber patriotic, making this glorified, expensive, glossy B movie while also like celebrating fascism by making fun of it, which makes it, which, which ensures that it ends up looking bad, which is such, which is such a crazy combination. Someone gave him this massive budget to make this massive alien science fiction war movie that is even more biting and vicious than Robocop was his, you know, his first breakout film in America. Uh, I think Starship Troopers is a straight-up masterpiece. I think there's a, maybe Doctor Strangelove is the only other major American film to bite the hand that feeds it with such ferocity. <laughs> I, I love this film to death. Uh, so, guys, what do you, I want to know the round the table. Who here has seen Starship Troopers? Is it brilliant? Because or is it? Am I giving it too much credit? Yeah, I love Starship Troopers. Yeah, it pretty much rules. Yeah, every, everything you said is dead on. It's. I do think it's funny that when this came out, a lot of critics somehow did not realize it's supposed to be satire. And they were like, this is terrible. And time has been much, much kinder to it because it's very obviously satire, but it's great. Yeah. I I saw it in theaters and it it was a great time. I don't, I I haven't revisited it in many years, so I I, I might have. I will say that when I saw it, I was 11 years old, so it was not exactly appropriate (laughs) for me. Uh, and so I watched it because of the really violent action and also because I was a stupid, horny kid. And, and oh, man, there's nudity in this movie, too. And then I had a whole like second wave of like, oh, this movie is better for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, very similar thing with me, Brad. I was, I was roughly the same age when I first saw it. Uh, 
and I thought, man, this is a cool action movie. It's so it's so violent. Like movies, it's it's so ridiculously violent. And I, when I when I watch this kill, I'm like, man, this violence is awesome. And I watch it as an adult, and I go, oh, it's violent because uh, this is a society where they're going to war against an enemy who they really can't beat, who really hasn't doesn't has nothing to do with them, and they're going to war and dying these horrible bloody deaths because violence is the only thing that, that can keep a fascist society alive because we remove violence and war from authoritarianism the whole system falls apart so i'm like oh the violence actually serves a political purpose like i fucking love this movie <laughs> it is so good and if you haven't seen it in a long time it is on netflix right now uh hg have you seen starship troopers i, I know you um read my article because you proofread it for me Yes, I uh, know. I haven't seen Starship Troopers. I've seen RoboCop because all my guy friends are like, "You have to watch RoboCop." And you know, RoboCop is good. Um, I can't say that I loved it, and I totally got like all of the social commentary that was going into it. So I don't. I can't say I'm like the biggest Verhoeven fan, but um, uh, I I haven't seen it. So, but I'll check it out because your article did intrigue me. I didn't realize how much was going into Starship Troopers. Yeah. So you should also yeah. watch uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Total Recall, which is on Netflix right now. That's another really great Verhoeven movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I will say, Jacob, I think you're probably the first person to to mention this film and Doctor Strangelove in the same sense. <laughs> I genuinely think they belong in the same conversation. I, I think they're both they both have similar intent. Uh, okay, I'm going. I'm going way too long. I watched Tomb Raider, the Angelina Jolie one. Don't watch Tomb Raider, guys. It's on cable. I don't know why I watched it. I watched with. I watched Tomb Raider with commercials. And other than um, a extremely baby faced Daniel Craig and a baby faced Ian Glenn, you know, Jorah Mormont from Game of Thrones, it's just a bad movie. So the only interest I got was saying, "Oh man, those guys look really, really young compared to their now craggly older selves." Don't watch Tomb Raider. Uh, Wait, if you think that's a bad movie, what do you think of the second one? Oh, it's even worse. <laughs> it's, uh, Tomb Raider, I think the Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider is actually pretty okay and pretty good um, it's, it's at least better than the Angelina Jolie one which I think is uh, 10 pounds of crap squeezed into 109 minutes or however long it is uh, Unsolved Mystery on Netflix you guys talked about last week it's good I like it a lot it's everything the original show was but like in the most handsome package imaginable I think it's a respectful exciting uh, really well done true crime stuff or in the case of the one ufo episode uh supernatural paranoia stuff uh i loved it uh i'm really really excited for more uh and i feel it's weird to be excited about something that is you know often so dark and upsetting but hey uh that's true crime for you i i i I do really respect that it it holds back on being excited about the stories it's telling and is respectful about them which makes it better television for sure i I have a question for you jacob oh yeah i just watched the the ufo uh episode and one of the things I loved about Unsolved Mysteries when they would do the ghost stuff or the the alien stuff is that it felt real. And while I was watching this, I don't think I believed any of these people. They all seemed pretty crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, were, were, did they? Were, were you believing that they believed it, or oh no? I have very complex feelings about uh, UFOs uh, and aliens. I believe they exist. I believe these people believe they, this happened to them. Uh, I, I believe they should be listened to and should be heard and should not be like ignored. Um, I wish I could fully believe that it actually happened, but I also don't discount their stories. If that, if that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what else? Have you uh, last thing. Uh, my wife and I have been drunk watching supermarket sweep, which hit Netflix, the old uh, early nineties, late eighties game show where people run through a grocery store uh, trying to grab products and fill up their baskets. It is, one of the worst things ever made, and I love it 
so much. Uh, I don't recommend watching it sober. I recommend uh, capping off your evening of of drinking too much with an episode or three of Supermarket Sweep now on Netflix. And that's it. Okay. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching this week? Ahem. I watched The Princess Bride, and I won't say too much about it because I feel like everyone has seen The Princess Bride, but I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I have. I had the Criterion Blu-ray, but I just never got around to watching it. And I just felt like, you know, I'm going to watch this. And it holds up. That is a charming, delightful, romantic, funny film. And I, the only criticism I'll say about that is the soundtrack. The music is really bad. Like, it's like the whole soundtrack sounds like, I don't know if any of you used to have like a Casio keyboard, but Mm -hmm. it used to come with like presets and there was a button called uh, fanfare. And it was just like digital trumpets (laughs) going like, and this like the whole soundtrack of the movie sounds like someone hitting the fanfare button over and over again. And like a part of me wants someone to do like a fan edit where they somehow remove all that music and put like a good classical music score in there. But beyond that, that movie uh, is delightful. Um, And then after I watched that, I was like in the mood for more movies about, you know, people with swords and stuff like that. So I, Watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because that's on Hulu right now. And uh, my one of my recent quarantine streams is all about this. And I, I know a lot of people have problems with this movie, and it has problems of its own. You know, Kevin Costner uh, is clearly not trying to do an accent here. It's, I don't know what he's doing, but uh, for for all its flaws, I, I still really enjoy this movie. Uh, Alan Rickman is, is having a ball as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, the clear opposite of Princess Bride. The soundtrack to this is is so damn good. Michael Kamen did it, and it's just just triumphant and and sweeping, and it makes you want to like just stand up. It's like a great score, and uh, you know, I dug it. And it, it's definitely better than like any Robin Hood movie that came after it, like the Russell Crowe one or that recent one with uh, what's his name, Rocket Man, <laughs> Taron Egerton. Yes, he's in it, and like because like they <laughs> both of those movies, like they're trying to be something completely different like they're just trying to take the robin hood brand and work it around like the 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 rocket man one is is basically just a remake of the dark knight but with robin hood in it and this one you know even though it does have gritty stuff in it it's still basically a robin hood movie and i you know i have a lot of fun with that so robin hood prince of thieves now streaming on hulu okay ben what have you been watching uh, I watched the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. That is a mouthful of what? a title. It is a uh, romantic comedy that came out in 2018. It's a Netflix original. And um, Lily James stars in this. And uh, Jacob, you know how to pronounce the guy's name who played Dario Naharis on Game of Thrones? Is it is it Michael H- Huseman? Is it Michelle Huseman? I'm not sure. He's Danish, I believe. I've always said Michael, Michael Huseman. Huseman. I could be wrong. Okay. Yeah. So he is like the, uh, the hunky, uh, love interest in this and, um, guys, what a nice movie. What a, a, uh, comforting, um, just gorgeous countryside little romance. Uh, there it's a movie that is basically, um, it's a period piece. It takes place in the aftermath of world war II, And, uh, this author receives this letter from this, uh, this isolated Island that the Nazis had taken over uh, and, and occupied during the war. And uh, after the war, this, um, 
this like literary, this unconventional literary society formed while the Nazis were there and, and uh, continued on after the war. And this author begins this correspondence with this hunky guy who has a tragic backstory. And uh, she actually ends up going out there to this island and meeting this, this, uh, you know, ragtag group of, of people in this literary society. And it's, um, it's, you know, there are some sad moments in here and, and it doesn't, I guess to, to minimize it drastically, it doesn't get too heavy with the Nazi stuff. <laughs> I'll say that. So if you're looking for like a, a relatively breezy watch, I think this qualifies. Um, and man, Lily James is just uh, so lovely. And, and Michael Huseman is just a hunk and a half in this movie. He's wearing, you know, <laughs> he's, he's bearded and wearing like old uh, torn sweaters and everything. And it's the, the whole movie just, I, I wrote and I wrote about it in the quarantine streams. So you can read about uh, more about it there, but I, I said, that it sort of feels like it's like the movie equivalent of curling up at a seaside cottage to read your favorite novel. Then that's really what this reminds me of. I think it's also like one of the most beautifully shot Netflix original movies. So that is, and get ready for this title again, the Guernsey literary and potato peel pie society. So I check just, that out. I feel seen like you movie? saw it a long time ago, right? Yeah, I saw it when it came out. My uh, cousins came over to watch it with me because they're very excited about the new Lily James movie. Lily James has a big following amongst uh, young millennial women, I guess. Um, And uh, I saw it and I thought it was cute and sweet. Um, But my big problem with this is uh, that I think Glenn Powell, who is the, the... a sort of side, the guy that Lily James' character leaves for Michael Huseman is just so much more charismatic than Michael Huseman. I just, I don't like Michael Huseman in any role that I've seen him in. I remember when he replaced, uh, he became, he was, when he uh, replaced the other Ed, Ed Screen, Ed Screen, uh, screen as Dario. Yeah. yeah uh, in Game of Thrones, I was like, wow, this guy is just like blandly handsome. And I feel like he's been blandly handsome in everything else I've seen him in, especially in this movie. But other than that, it's sweet. I just think that Glenn Powell is just so much more charismatic. I'm like, why did she leave him? He's so much more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. So that's on Netflix right now. Uh, I also watched The Exorcist for the first time, which is streaming on HBO Max. And uh, this is one that's been on my list of shame for years and years. The first time? Really? I know, yeah. That is shocking. Not to be one of those guys who's like, you've never seen, but that is shocking. Yeah, I I just finally got around to checking this out. And um, man, what a movie. It's, uh, I don't know if I loved it. I feel like so much of this movie has like seeped into pop culture where I absorbed, you know, most of it before I ever actually saw the movie itself. So that's obviously like on me and not on the movie. Um, But when this thing opened, when the movie opened uh, or or begins, I should say not opened like back in 1973 when it came out, but when, when it begins, Uh, I was like, wait a second, is this The Exorcist? Because there's so much of the movie. It's probably like a solid 30 minutes or something before anything really truly creepy starts to happen. And the cinematography in the very beginning of the movie is like, Max von Sydow is like out in, I think he's in Iraq, in like the Iraqi desert uh, doing like an archaeological dig. And it looks just like Raiders of the Lost Ark, like the, you know, characters framed against the, the sun and like an orange hue across some of the shots and stuff and i mean raiders of the lost art came out in what 81 so it was like almost a decade after this movie so i was like huh i wonder if uh, spielberg was like purposefully paying homage to that when he uh when he made raiders because i i'd never heard about the exorcist being a potential influence on raiders but uh it, it may have happened um but yeah i i guess 
spoilers for The Exorcist, real quick. I just want to say one thing about this movie. Um, so if I'll just want to give people one moment to pause or fast forward, just like one minute, if you don't want to know anything about this. But Max von Sydow is not in the movie that much at all. I thought he was the main character. That was the one, like, that was the biggest shock to me was I thought he was going to be the main guy. And he shows up at the very beginning for, you know, five minutes, if that. And then at the very end, he rolls in to like perform the actual exorcism. And he's on screen for, I don't know, 10 minutes at that point. And I was just like sort of blown away because my entire life, I just thought that he was the lead of this movie and he is definitely not. I mean, I think he's he has top billing um, next to Ellen Burstyn, but uh, man, I, I was very surprised by that. So um, William Friedkin, really good director. Oh, and also the editing in this movie is nuts. Uh, I, I'm sure this has been said by everybody who's ever seen this film, but the editing, I, I just was it's it it really goes a long way toward making the movie feel really unsettling um because it seems like every scene just abruptly ends and cuts to something else um in a way that uh where the editing almost calls attention to itself um it's not something you see in in modern movies so i don't know if anybody here has anything to say specifically about the editing of the exorcist i I have a i have a quick question ben do you know which version you watch because recently not recently but they eventually released the thing called the the version you've never seen before, which cut in some deleted scenes. And it also added some stuff that make, I don't think the movie needs, like it adds like goofy subliminal faces in places that they weren't there before. Do you, do you know what version you watch? Uh, that is a really good question because I feel like I did see subliminal faces, but well, those, those are in the original. All right. Here's the, here's how you can tell. Is there a okay. scene where, the Reagan, the girl comes down the stairs upside down, like, and oh. <laughs> really quickly. Is that like, it's called like the spider walk. It was that in the version you saw, you know, now that you say that, that was one of the images that I think I had absorbed from pop culture. And I was expecting that to be in the movie and I completely forgot about it. And it was not in the version that, that is okay, on. Yeah. Max, so then you so. saw the theatrical one, which I honestly, even though that spider walk is very cool, I do think the theatrical version is the superior version. Okay, good. All right. Uh, okay, so that's on HBO Max right now if you want to check that out. And then uh, my wife and I also watched the first two episodes of The Babysitter's Club, which is the new, uh, I guess, take on the the classic uh, property, the new adaptation of the uh, children's novel series. And this is on Netflix. And um, she grew up reading these books. I did not. I, I was more of like a, I read Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and that kind of stuff. And and I think HT, we were talking in the Slack channel the other day, Boxcar Children. That was another big one for me. Um, yeah, but I did not. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't grow up reading any of the Babysitters Club, but she, you know, was very familiar with those. She read a bunch of those books uh, as a, as a, you know, when she was growing up, and and I had heard good things about this show. Um, I was kind of hoping that it would be like a, a slightly younger version of um, Never Have I Ever, the the other Netflix uh, series that um, came out earlier this year that I really enjoyed. And it's not as good as that. It's it's a whole different thing. It definitely seems like it's aimed toward a younger audience. Um, but it's, it's fine. It's charming. Uh, Alicia Silverstone shows up in, uh, at least the first episode and there are a couple clueless references in there that I thought were like, uh, you know, a little eye rolling, but also a little amusing at the same time. So, um, babysitters club, you're looking for something incredibly low key and with, you know, very, very little stakes. Uh, (laughs) you can check that out on Netflix. I do have to ask you, Ben, are you planning on watching more episodes? Uh, I think so, just because it's, you know, the episodes are like, what, 25 minutes or something like that. And we'll probably throw them on, you know, at the end of the night when 
when we don't quite have enough time to watch anything else and feel like, uh, you know, to squeeze something else in before we have to go to bed, like, oh yeah, we just got 20 minutes. Let's just throw one of these on that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't think we're going to be watching it like with any sort of, uh, you know, high anticipation or, or like, all right, it's, it's Tuesday. We got to watch another one of these episodes, but um, I think we'll just sort of throw it on when the, the time fits out for us. Fair enough. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, or maybe it was last week, we talked about Flora's Lava. Brad, you've finally seen the show. What do you yeah, think? I've watched a couple episodes, uh, and it's really fun. Um, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Rutledge Wood as the host. He's a little obnoxious, and like sometimes I just want him to shut up. Um, but yeah, what, but what I do love about this show is the... <laughs> The players on the show are kind of goobers, and like I, I don't really like any of them very much. Um, and so when they, when I watch them and I see them fall, it brings me so much joy. <laughs> I just I laugh at when they fail these these like tasks and stuff because they're they're obviously hamming it up and they're saying silly things and like just the way they cheer on cheer each other on feels so phony. Like not even it doesn't even feel like genuine game show excitement stuff. It just seems like they're really trying to put on a show for for the camera, and I'm sure they've been instructed to do so. But it just makes like the, the the challenge of seeing them jump and like just slam into these objects and fall into the lava so much more entertaining. And I was I was laughing so hard while watching this show. It's it's entertaining for that very reason. I feel like they have earpieces where they're being fed lines. Yeah, yeah. The it show it really does feel like that sometimes. It's um, yeah, it's, it's very cheesy, but this, yeah, it, it's it's too good of a physical competition in just how funny it is to watch them fail and figure stuff out. Uh, to actually, you know, for me to hate it, I, I love it because of how, how annoying it is sometimes. <laughs> yeah. What else? Have you been um, watching? I also uh, watched the Smithson Library and Pizza Milkshake Organization. Um, which is a sequel to the, the it's what? a fake thing. I was just making fun of that Guernsey literary title. <laughs> uh, I like that though, Brad. I would absolutely watch that. Um, I rewatched uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Um, I wrote about this for a quarantine stream a little while back, and uh, it made me want to rewatch it. And I found out that my girlfriend hadn't seen it yet. And so we, we sat down to give it a watch. And I just, I love this movie so much. It is, um, it's one of the, the rare great parodies that we've uh, seen in the past couple decades. Uh, it's kind of an art that has gone by the wayside a little bit since Friedberg and Seltzer ruined it with date movie and epic movie and all that other trash. But this is such a good parody. And it is, uh, it's the reason that a lot of uh, music industry biopics like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and stuff like that have been ruined because it mocks all of the formulaic elements of those movies. Uh, this one really digs into Ray and Walk the Line and has John C. Riley playing uh, a Johnny Cash kind of uh, folk rock singer uh, guy. And uh, it has just an awesome cast of people in it. Jenna Fisher and Kristen Wiig and Tim Meadows. And there's just small bit parts from people everywhere. And some of them, this, this movie was made long enough ago now that some of the people that are in it weren't like full on super famous yet. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just so good. It's so funny. It's on Netflix now, but if you can, uh, get a hold of the unrated edition, because that version is, is even funnier in my opinion. Very cool. That movie is so good. If you have not seen walk hard, go see walk hard. When it came out, I was in San Francisco, uh, you know, running slash film and John C. Riley actually came to town, not only to do interviews, but he actually performed a concert as Dewey Cox in a small 
rock venue and it's it's one of the greatest that is things amazing i'm so jealous the, of that the moment he started it wasn't just like him performing songs from the movie he was in character from start uh, that's to awesome yeah uh, what else? Uh, so watching? while I work, I put stuff on in the background. I have the TV on, and it's always stuff that I've seen before because I don't want to be distracted by it. And usually, if I'm watching something new, I want to pay attention to it. Uh, and I decided to put on Entourage because I have HBO Max now. And even though I've already had HBO Max, it just happened to catch my eye. And I was just like, you know what? It's been a long time since I've watched Entourage, and I'm going to put it on. And uh, gosh, this show has aged very, very poorly. Um, for mostly because of the kind of comedy. It was always a very douche bro show to begin with, but it is full of so much homophobia and transphobia. And uh, man, everyone knew Ari Gold was a total asshole, you know, while this show was on. But the stuff now is just, it's even more crass and inappropriate now in the age of Me Too, because just the thing he thinks he says and just how he talks about and treats like the women on this show, it is... Man, it's it's rough to watch, and the only reason I'm, I'm but, but isn't he supposed to be one of those characters? Like, isn't he sure? But like, it's just it's harder to watch now. Uh, um, and yeah. it's I, I'm still watching it just because I the reason I, I I'm watching it to begin with is because I love the showbiz stuff on the show so much. It's just like uh, all the cameos and just you know like um the 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 storylines that they go through they're very simple and like they're not it's not smart TV by any means. But I I like you know, the seeing people like James Cameron show up, you know, they have so many filmmakers that play themselves uh, and so many actors and actresses. And it's, it's fun to see them, you know, uh, do these like exaggerated versions of themselves throughout the show. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of the stuff has not aged very well in the show. Yeah. Yeah. The, the film industry stuff can be so smart at times. And so like, like clever and, Probably too inside baseball for a lot of the people watching the show. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of inside baseball stuff. Um, and one thing that's I've always thought so weird about this show is that like they they have like substitutes for certain people in in Hollywood and certain like situations and things like that. Like they talk about real people and they exist in here, but then like uh, they have a care um, a character that is a stand-in for Harvey Weinstein and is very clearly supposed to be Harvey Weinstein, but it would seem to imply that Harvey Weinstein doesn't exist in the entourage world. <laughs> I wonder if they approached him about playing himself and he was like, Ugh, no. It's a good thing they didn't. That would have made it even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's move on to HD. What have you been watching this week? I've been watching a, an anime series called Japan Sinks 2020. It's an adaptation by Masaki Yuasa of a 1973 disaster novel by Japanese writer Sakio Komatsu. And it's about Japan after going through a series of earth-shattering earthquakes uh, starts to sink into the ocean. Um, and it's actually a story that's been adapted several times in Japanese film and television. And uh, now a Masaki Yuasa, who has directed such feature films as Mind Game and is known for series like Devil Man Cry Baby, um, it is uh, adapt- made into an anime series, which is um, really, really um, harrowing uh, piece of work. It tells us the story of you know, the sinking of Japan from the point of view of a family that is on the ground when Japan starts to sink. And uh, they as they try to survive and just kind of make their way through um, the 
the horrible disaster um, while trying to figure out like where what is happening and the information that is not really um, whether it's trustworthy or not. And um, it's it's really beautifully animated and has such a grounded approach despite being um, so has despite having so much spectacle. And um, I I will say that Mizaki Wasa's animation style isn't is kind of hard to get used to for a lot of people because it's not typical of anime style that his character animation is a little bit more fluid and kind of um, almost a little like it looks a little bizarre sometimes, but it is just gorgeously, gorgeously animated. And especially in the wider shots of the actual disasters and the spectacle and stuff. Um, but the, um, the thing that draws you in is, is the story of this one family. It's a four person family um, that is trying to get by and dealing with much several tragedies on top of the other. And um, it's, yeah, it's very intense, very, very harrowing um, and a little bit hard to watch, especially during a pandemic and like a kind of feeling like this, because it's set in contemporary times and 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 draws a lot on just like social media and um, our current media cycle and everything like that, it feels almost a little bit too true to like the current state of affairs. Um, despite you know not being exactly the same, but it's it's really really um, tremendous stuff, and I, I recommend it uh, even if you don't like anime. It's called Japan Sinks Twenty Twenty, and it's on Netflix now. And um, one other thing I watched is uh, Columbus, which I rewatched. It is the 2017 drama directed by Kogonada, starring John Cho and Haley Lee Richardson. And I wrote about this in a recent quarantine stream and how it's a movie that I really liked when I watched it, uh, especially for how it calls back to some of my favorite films like the Before Trilogy and Before Sunset. Um, and uh, it's about these two people uh, one, a son of a renowned architecture who finds himself stranded in Columbus, Indiana, um, after his father falls ill. And uh, Casey, a young woman who's a big architecture enthusiast and kind of stuck in her own dead end life and how they meet and have uh, the sort of kinship um, and it is it is kind of a pseudo romance. It flirts with romance, and it's not doesn't exactly go all the way in that. But it's this really beautifully shot, serene film. And Kogonada comes from the video essay world, so you can really tell that he puts his all into the visuals and the blocking of this film, especially in how he uses the town of Columbus, which is a sort of known as the as a modern architecture mecca. And I wrote about this in a recent quarantine stream talking about how I really liked this movie when it came out. And I, um, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is it was great. And, but it, and I felt like it didn't make that much of an impression on me. But as I came away from it, it was just one of those movies that really stayed with me for some reason. And I kept thinking about it a lot. And I regretted just not putting it on my top 10 of 2017 just because it's a movie that you know just really lingered with me and I, I really enjoyed it. So um, Columbus, great movie. And it's streaming on Criterion Channel right now. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what kind of crap have you been uh, eating this week? Well, a couple, I guess, not so healthy things. But the first thing, which is awesome that I got to do, was uh, I mentioned I was in Kansas City. Uh, and Kansas City has really good barbecue. In fact, they have what is considered one of the best barbecue joints uh, in the world. It's called Joe's Kansas City Barbecue. Uh, Anthony Bourdain named it as one of uh, the places you have to eat before you die. 
and I got what they're known for, which is uh, the Z-Man sandwich. It is a sandwich that has um, delicious, wonderful uh, barbecue um, brisket on it and cheese and onion rings. And it is just uh, incredible. The meat is so flavorful and tender. Their, their sauce is delicious. It also comes with these uh, amazing seasoned fries and I was so happy that I was able to uh, go to my way to, to try it while we were down there. Uh, easily one of the best barbecue sandwiches uh, at barbecue in general that I have had. And uh, next time we get on to visit, I'll definitely have to try something else from their menu. Oh, and they have really good white cheddar macaroni and cheese, too, that I got as a side as well. Yeah, I saw a picture of the sandwich on your Instagram, and it looks amazing. Yeah, it, and it really is. Uh, yeah, just I, I was... I was skeptical just because, you know, you know, you never know. And it's been hyped up so much, but it was every single bite I had was uh, delicious. Brad, this is the place that I've, I go every year when I go with my wife to Kansas city for her work trip. And um, I recently discovered, I think within the last year that you can ship food from Joe's Kansas city to you, you know, anywhere in the country. And uh, over Christmas break, I shipped some stuff to my dad. I think it was uh, pulled pork or maybe brisket. I don't recall, but um, it is just as good shipped as it is in the place, which I, I thought there was no way that that would actually be the case, but I had some and it is unreal. And now I'm like so thrilled to know that whenever I want, I can just like for special occasions, it's kind of expensive because you have to pay for, it's like 80 bucks or something to get some shipped to you, but it's man. Wait, it's, how, how much do you get? For eighty bucks, uh, I don't recommend. I don't remember. I'll have to like pull up the actual page. I don't want to like misquote and mislead anybody listening to this. But uh, I mean, if you're into well, how many barbecue, meals did you make out of it? Is what I'm. Oh saying. god. Uh, I mean, at least at least two or three. Um, and I don't know. It, it, whatever it was, it was worth it. It was worth the money because it's as Brad says, and as I've said many times, it's the best barbecue I've ever had in my entire life. So, um, if you are uh, are interested in that, Brad, I, I would definitely recommend. Um, you know, you don't have to wait until you go back to Kansas City. Again. Yeah, that's good to know actually. Um, because I yeah, I would like to try that out and see if uh, if it does hold up. I'm glad. I'm, that was my first question too, and I'm glad you mentioned that it it would because I wouldn't expect it to be as good if you had it sent to you. Yeah, and the um, they sell that that fry seasoning individually, so you can get that. I, I've bought that and just like put it on fries that I make, you know, from the grocery store here, and it really like takes them up a notch. And then also, um, Joe's has like a dirty rice, I think they call it, which is like you know sausage and and um, it's like a little bit spicy and it's really good. Uh, I ordered a side of that and had that shipped as well, and that is just as good, you know, uh, delivered as it is nice. in the store. So. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we did pick it. up uh, their sauce and fry seasoning from uh, the location that we picked up the food from. So we definitely have that. But yeah, I'm going to have to give that a shot once I'm feeling the craving again. Um, and then I uh, found uh, new roasted gar Parmesan and roasted garlic Pringles. Um, pretty basic as far as Pringles flavors go. Um, I've had other garlic par um, Parmesan like potato chips before, kettle cooked. Um, and these are the flavor is still pretty good. It's um, the garlic is a little bit overpowering, but not in a way where it's like it completely like, you know, makes the chip bad or anything like that. Uh, but expect to have really bad breath after you have some of these chips. Um, and then do you guys remember Koala Yummies? No. So there was these cookies when I, when I was a kid. They're um, they're kind of like a a, a thin not not quite wafer style cookie, but uh, and they were shaped like koalas, and they had 
uh, chocolate or vanilla cream filling inside them. Um, they don't they don't have that brand name anymore. But if you go to like different grocery stores and they have uh, an Asian food section, they have the the Asian uh, version of it, which is they're called uh, Koala's March cookies. And I found out recently that they have other flavors, like they have strawberry cream uh, and whatnot. And a new one just came out uh, that has mango cream. And uh, when my girlfriend was visiting another person in her family recently, they went to uh, an Asian market and she found them there. And I tried them and they are very, very good. I wasn't sure if the mango would mix well with the the cookie and like the chocolatey style kind of cream. Um, But they're they're very, very good. So if you if you can find them either... uh, in an Asian market nearby where you are, or just check out, you know, the, the right aisle in your grocery store and see if they have them there. Um, they're, they're good cookies. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been playing. HT, what have you been playing this week? I've been playing the first few episodes of the Sandman Audible series. This is the audio drama that is debuting on Audible on July 15th. And I got a preview of the first of well, I got a preview of the whole thing, but I've just only listened to the first couple episodes because it's very long. It adapts the uh, first three volumes of the Sandman graphic novel series by Neil Gaiman, and it's uh, is narrated by Gaiman himself and is and stars James McAvoy as Morpheus, aka Dream, aka the Sandman, and all the other terms that he has. And I had read the Sandman graphic novels a while ago, like maybe seven years ago and they are I'm, they're fantastic I'm, I've always been a huge Neil Gaiman fan and the Sandman graphic novels are just disturbing and fantastical uh of the highest nature and I've and just kind of feels like very much very Gaiman unleashed especially in the design of the Sandman which is actually based off of Gaiman himself and um uh, the, the audible adaptation actually does a really good job of adapting the graphic novel series despite being a audio drama um retelling of graphic novels which is something you wouldn't think would work very well but um because neil gaiman already has such a a rich story and um that is able to be kind of retold in more narrating form it really works although it kind of dials down some of the more horror horror grotesque um elements of the graphic novels which i think you can't really replicate it unless you have the visuals. It just plays off more as the high fantasy um, story that it kind of becomes later on. But um, I, I, I will. I did say I, I can't say I. I could say I missed some of that more unnerving parts because I feel like it's it was hard to to capture it, especially um, in a such a dense story as this. Um, but I liked it, except I will say. I, don't, I think that James McAvoy is kind of miscast in this role. I think he's a very, very great actor, um, and he does a, and he gives a good performance here. But um, I just imagine Morpheus as having a much deeper voice, um, like Benedict Cumberbatch levels deep. Um, and so I just I felt like he is just a little bit more. Yeah, even like in his vocal performance, he just kind of always t- reads to me as like the hero. So, and like, you know, Morpheus is the hero, he's the protagonist, but I just feel like he doesn't have that inhuman factor that I kind of imagined from the the character. But um, has anyone here read the Sandman graphic novels? I feel like Jacob definitely has. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is, um, it's as good as his reputation suggests. I'm very skeptical about the audio version because I think when you deal with characters who are literally walking embodiments of ideas, 
uh, taking away the visual and relying on a voice to capture like characters who are more than gods. Uh, I'm not so sure if I'm how ready I am to accept that in for, for this kind of storytelling. I feel like Sandman's the kind of thing that feels like it can only be a comic. The way it varies visuals and ideas and game is dialogue. And I, like you said, I, how does James McAvoy, who has a lovely voice, capture a character who is intended to be the embodiment of dreams? I, I, I'm, not so sure, I'm not so sure if I'm ready for this, but I'm going to give it a shot. I think you'll like it. I do think that it doesn't it doesn't quite capture exactly what made Sandman so brilliant. Um, but Neil Gaiman gives this really storybook style narration that does make it feel more sort of fairy tale and fantasy, which isn't bad, and, but in is and is an element of the Sandman graphic novels, but um, can't quite you know capture it. But I think it's still good, and it's quite a loyal adaptation. It even has a lot of dialogue that's lifted straight from the graphic novels. So how does this work? Like, do you need to be a subscriber to Audible to listen to this? Yes. Uh, I think, yeah, it's an Audible original. I think you have to be a subscriber to Audible. You can also, I think, get it on Amazon, um, which through, like, its Audible partnership. But, um, yeah, it's premiering exclusively on audible.com. Okay. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast in iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback questions comes concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and if you have time head on over to itunes give us a rating write us a review tell your friends spread the word and we will see you on monday peter guys peter. it's the weekend are you ready what, what peter peter this is very important peter peter it's, yeah. it's very, very important I, I i've opened the gargantuan book of insult offense and affrontery sharp retorts repost cost quips implied put downs by Louis A. Safian. I hope the page number seven. Page number seven. Introduction. Repartee has been defined as saying what you think after becoming a departee, saying as quick as a flash what you didn't say the next morning. Everyone, at one time or another, has had occasion to echo the familiar lamentation. Backward. Turn backward, O oh time, in your flight. I just thought of a wisecrack I needed last night. How often have you felt the need, at a given moment, for a whimsical wisecrack, or a waggish quip that put a spark in your conversation. Why be caught with your gags down? You can't win the battle of wits unless you are properly armed with a repartee of rapid-fire repartee, a capsule caricature, a salty sally, or a snappy comeback. The unbashed purpose of this compilation is to enable you, at the drop of a gag, to place your comic, laconic stamps on the idiosyncrasies of the diverse human specimens of the human race. I have endeavored to include the wit of absurdity, analogy, burlesque, cynicism, drollery, epigram, fastidiousness, ridicule, thought play, wordplay, and urbanity. The breezy one-liner, to which I have adhered in this volume, gets your point across in a headline form in this age of high speed, sums up a situation in a nutshell, and adds a tension-winning punch to your comments. The, the, the secret of the success of the epigram is found in its definition, a grain of truth in the twinkling of an eye. The so-called insult gag is, in essence, an epigrammic wisecrack concerning people's nature, conduct, or appearance. TV hey, Jacob, let's start. This is... It's going too long. TV and nightclub comedians who are masters of the insult gag indulge in their heart's content in a sick and exidious wit and verbal brickbats, bombshells, and blackjacks with the insurance that no one in their audience identifies himself as their target. Jonathan Swift expressed this skillfully in the definition of satire, a sort of glass wherein beholders do generally discover everyone's face. 
but their own. What's a salty Sally? Aside from his reputation, <laughs> the insult gag helps at times to blow off steam and get a pet peeve off one's chest. There is an old saying, it takes all kinds of people to make a world. In our human relations, many of our irritations and annoyances spring from other people's behavior, dress, or appearance. It often becomes a necessity to call a spade a spade without stubbing our toes on one. Wow. Edge with the sharpness of truth, the thesaurus of sizzling flip quickles, mad quibs, bright slayings, and tongue whippers offers you a well-stocked arsenal for the fullest expression of your critical faculties. Alphabetically arranged according to the target of your pointed dart, it is a ready reference for assassinating axes, burying boars, demolishing stuffed shirts, knocking the knockers, Putting the kibosh on the kibitzers, prodding the pompous, shrinking egotist's heads, and squelching the pest. <laughs> so, for your innocent and not so innocent pleasure, I'll offer this supermarket of sweet and not so sweet one liners, with which you can add luster to your reputation as a wit, a clever epigrammist, and an astute caricaturist. The pins are here in abundance to prick a lot of balloons and spoons. God, With all this ammunition, so. you can now crack the quips and let them fall where they may. May your tongue be your sword, and may it ever never grow rusty. With my best gratings, I am very tartly yours, Louis A. Safian. I, I am. I. I just wow. don't even. I'm so mad, but I also think this is so funny. Like I. I missed some of that. Can you start from the beginning again? <laughs> okay. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure some of those things are on Urban Dictionary as sexual favors. <laughs> Repartee has been oh, defined. No. Saying- That's it. That's it. No, That's fine. That's no. Fine. no, no, no. Fun fact. Hamilton, I think, used this book. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Repartee has been defined. <laughs> <laughs>